Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 18. 1 Kings, chapter 18. While you're turning there, for some time I've had different individuals ask me if I was going to speak about the election and whether I was going to give you guidance on whom to vote for. And so this morning I woke up and, and the Lord gave me clear direction about who to vote for. And I want to talk about the election this morning, very real election that's coming and where you have a choice to make. It's been said by some that what we need is to make America great again. Without understanding what it was that made America great. What really needs to happen is America needs to make God great again. And it's only in our knowledge of Him and our submission of our hearts to Him and our following Him that our nation will have any hope. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation. And a good definition for righteousness is simply this. Doing what God wants you to do. And when we are doing what God wants us to do individually in our lives and collectively as churches, whatever the nation needs to be will take care of itself. That won't be our concern. Because our focus and our attention will be on God and how he's leading us and speaking to us. There's a circumstance in the Old Testament familiar perhaps to you. You heard this story maybe as a child if you were raised in a church like this. But I believe it, it describes in many ways where we are as a nation and even as a church. Sometimes we look at the past and we say, what we need is for Wind Baptist Church to be great again like she was at another time. And that what we need is to return to the past. And if we would do what we did before and do the things that we did before and, and replicate what had happened in the past, then Wind Baptist Church would be great again. But listen, the goal is not for the church to be great. The goal is for the church to make God great. And when we forget that, we will, we will be struggling and, and wandering and frustrated and the armor that we're supposed to wear and the weapon we're supposed to carry, we will use it on one another instead of standing and taking the territory that God has called us to infiltrate and to take back from the enemy. Israel, the northern kingdom, was one of two kingdoms that had divided after the reign of King Solomon. Those of you who are Bible scholars, you'll remember that that Solomon was the last to rule over a United Kingdom and then it split and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. We've talked about this even recently here. The northern kingdom consisted uh, much more of people whose hearts had wandered from God. And because of that, they were the first to be destroyed and carried off into captivity. Not because of their evil works, but because they had forgotten God. 
and they were carried off in 722 B.C. But before that happened, one of the kings that they had was named Ahab. Ahab, we learn in the latter part of chapter 16 and 17, Ahab was up to that point in the northern kingdom the most wicked king that they had had to that time. If there was a way to offend a holy God, he could not have done a better job. In fact, the Bible even takes note of that and talks about how he sinned more than anyone before him as a king. And it goes on and says, uh, in chapter 16, verse 33, for example, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He was a worshiper of Baal. And the essence of that word means Lord or Master. And he had given his heart to an idol, to a false god, to a demon god in worship. And the thing that made the worship of Baal work involved things like self-mutilation, taking knives and cutting yourself and causing yourself to bleed. It involved ritual prostitution. It involved taking babies and throwing them into the fire, infant sacrifice. And before you become too appalled about that, you don't have to look very far in our nation to see us taking the lives of infants and babies in their mother's wombs. But when you come to chapter 17, another man arises on the scene. His name is Elisha. And in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, And Elisha the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, this is his first appearance. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I, I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And what began at that moment was a complete cessation of rain. That's all that happened. It stopped raining. Well, in ancient society as well as in modern society, if you're in a country that depends on agriculture for its existence when it stops raining you're in trouble and the nation was suffering and God was bringing to Israel pressure because of the idolatry that they were pursuing as a nation and as you read through and, and listen to what goes on in Israel both before this and after this this was constantly a problem that they had Rather than focus on who God is and what God made me for and the purpose for which I exist, which is to make an invisible God visible through my life, made in his image, that instead of submitting myself to God and finding out what he wants for my life, I'm going to develop a way of approaching God where I approach God to get primarily what I want from God. And all of my praying is about what I want from God. All of my actions are about getting what I want in life, and that becomes the dominant pursuit. We may not worship at the feet of Asherah or Baal, but we have some idols we need to tend to. And so God brings judgment to Israel, and he brings it in a way that is, that is characteristic of the way God brings judgment onto nations. At first, you realize that by causing it not to rain, it affected not only the, the people who had rejected the rule of God in their life, but it also affected the people of God, the people who loved him. And they were suffering as well. 
As you read about this period of famine and, and drought, you, you see how God provided miraculously first just for Elisha as ravens brought to him each day meat and bread. And then the brook dried up and God directed him to go to the house of a widow. And God supernaturally provided for that widow because of Elisha's presence when she did what Elisha told him to do, told her to do, which was to take the very last bit of flour that she had and make food for him. She was making it for herself and her child, so, and they were going to die. That was going to be their last meal. And you know the story? The flour bin never emptied. For three years, it never emptied. The oil container never ran dry. And although there were no crops in the fields, this lady had everything that she need, needed because she had listened to the word of God. And she had put her trust in God through his prophet. Well, God brings judgment like that. It affects everyone in a nation. It is a national judgment. That's one of the characteristics of the judgment that God brings. It affects everybody. The good, the bad, the ugly, it doesn't matter. They're all affected. We're all affected at the same time. A national judgment. It also is a judgment that is, typically affects our finances. It affects us financially when God brings that kind of judgment to a nation. In this case, their source of wealth was their agriculture, their their farming, their crops, and all of that was cut off, and so no one, no one who farmed could be successful, no one who needed food could find food, no one who made a living all, all, the, all the adjunct industries and businesses and crafts and everything that depended on crops year after year after year, nobody was going to be successful. Why? Because God had brought corrective financial judgment on the entire nation of Israel. And so it was national it was financial, but it was remedial. It was designed to correct the people of God. It was designed to cause the people of Israel to turn back to God and say, Oh God, why is this happening? But as far as we can tell in this story, that never happened. The people never turned back to him during year one, year two, year three of the drought. God has worked that way in our country before, and he may be doing it again. September 23rd, 1857, a young man by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear was a lay minister in New York City. At the North Dutch Church on Fulton Street, he decided to hold a prayer meeting at noon during the business day. And he wanted to reach people for the Lord, but God very clearly led him to just have a prayer meeting. And, um, and so he did that. He put out some posters and um, advertised it. He went up to the room and he waited and no one came. But eventually some others did come. They didn't come on time, but they did come between 12 and 1 each day that he had the prayer meeting. The first day, ultimately, six people showed up. Just six. A week later, those six became 10. By early October, he had 20 and then 40 people meeting together from 12 to 1 to pray. On October 18th, after they'd been praying for just over three weeks, on October 18th, there was a financial collapse in New York City. That financial collapse was to affect the entire young United States. 
People who were wealthy suddenly lost their wealth. People who didn't have much to begin with lost even what they had. And that little prayer meeting that began with six people on September 23rd, after October 18th, hundreds of people began coming, thousands of people began coming, and all over New York City, people were meeting in fire stations and police stations and anywhere that they could from 12 to 1 each business day to pray. Within six months, 10,000 men were praying in New York City every day from 12 to 1. That great prayer revival was the first revival that we know of that affected Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists were young. We were just starting out in many respects, but it affected Southern Baptists. And so in city after city across the United States, this prayer revival spread. People were praying in Memphis, Tennessee, and Nashville. They were praying in Denver, Colorado. They were praying in Portland, Oregon. The whole nation was shutting down between 12 and 1 during the workday as business people came together to pray. People were being saved. Marriages were being made right. Women would stand up in a meeting and say, pray for my, my son. And they would describe their son. And six guys would stand up thinking that he was the guy that she was talking about. And they would be saved. In the course of that 1857 to 1858 period, one million people came to Christ in the United States. There were only 20 million in population. One in 20 came to Christ after the financial collapse, but more significantly, after a very small prayer meeting that began with six people. Well, as this story unfolds, we see all kinds of parallels between what's happening in Israel and what's happening even in our own country. As the story unfolds, Ahab is trying to track Elisha down, and he is, he is ruthless in his efforts. Finally, God directs Elisha to go and meet with Ahab, and when they do, they have a confrontation. And the state of Israel uh, at this moment reminds me and should remind you of the state of our own nation because what was happening in Israel were basically two things there was the absence of God's presence that was the biggest problem that they had God was not present God was not blessing them God was not in their minds God was not in their hearts there was an absence of God's presence there was also an allegiance to other gods you say, well, pastor, we don't, we don't have a lot of idolatry among us, not in Wynn, Arkansas. We don't have a lot of idolatry. Let me name three. One is wealth. You don't have to look further than a magazine cover in a store to see that we idolize wealth. How to make money, how to multiply money, how to be financially secure. No matter what age you are, we have an incredible focus in our country. Our bookshelves and our bookstores our newspaper ads are all filled with references to how you can make money and how you can protect yourself. Buy this, buy gold, buy silver, buy copper, buy something, and you can be successful. We believe that we can find safety and security in our wealth. We believe that we can find safety and security in our health. Health is another idol. We must do everything we can to keep ourselves healthy at all costs. We will spend more time grooming and take caring taking care of our bodies, our physical bodies, than we will our human spirit and our soul. We will spend hours taking care of our bodies and never utter a prayer to God. 
And so we worship at an idol of wealth and health. But let's listen, the big one, the big one that all of us have to deal with is self. The idol of self. That I can come to a church and still worship at the idol of self. That I'm here for what I want and what I can get. I'm here not to be spoken to by God. I'm here to hear something that's going to help me pursue the things that are of interest to me. If I don't hear something that's of interest to me, then I'm going to go somewhere where I will hear something that's of interest to me. The Bible talks about how people will react increasingly in just that way in the final days. I'm not saying we're in the last days. In fact, we've been in the last days since Pentecost. But in the last days, it'll get worse. Well, they were doing all of this. They were worshiping at the gods of wealth and health and self. The reason they had rejected the God of Israel was because they thought Baal and Asherah could deliver what they wanted. And they were pursuing them. Well, God sends Elisha to Ahab. And in verse 20 of chapter 18, this is what we read. They were going to have this confrontation, this contest between the God Baal and the one true God. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elisha came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, Not a word. Just standing there silent. Then Elisha said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but no, put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like something we can do. And so the contest was simple. He goes before this people who have, who have given their hearts to other things besides God. God wants to bring them back to himself. He has used judgment, a financial judgment, a national judgment, a corrective or remedial judgment. That has not worked. And so now there's going to be a demonstration of what happens to people in the presence of God. He's going to demonstrate or show his presence. And so the contest is set up. He says, you build your altar, you prepare your sacrifice, and you call on your God. And I'm going to build an altar, and I'm going to prepare a sacrifice, and I'm going to call on my God. And the God that answers by fire, he is the one true God. And so he lets the prophets of Baal go first. And they do exactly that. They prepare an altar. They butcher a bull, they put it on top of the wood, and they proceed to call out to Baal. And they're calling out and calling out and calling out, and the Bible says they are leaping and they are jumping around and they are, they are straining to try to get Baal's attention. This goes on from early morning to midday. Nothing happens. The only comment that Elisha makes is he just asks them, where is Baal? Is he off meditating? Has he taken a journey? I mean, the humor there is, is wonderful. I mean, where is this God that you have given your life to? Where is this God that you have been seeking and you have been serving? 
You have put your faith in this God and he is not responding to you. You have put your trust in this thing and it is not responding to you. Where is your God? Where is he? When he's not responding, where is he? What's going on? Well, they continue, they get even louder. And they're crying and they're jumping up and down. They get their knives out and they cut themselves. They cut themselves with their knives so much that the Bible says the blood is gushing onto the sacrifice from their own bodies. Instead of backing up and rethinking, well, maybe we've made a mistake here. They are, they are going even deeper into their devotion to the things that they believe are going to keep them safe and secure. They're redoubling their efforts. By evening, they are exhausted. Uh, I believe they, most of them needed a blood transfusion by that point. They had done so much to try to get their God's attention. At that point, at the verse 36, the story picks up. Elisha has said, I'm going to build an altar. He takes 12 stones to represent the different tribes of Israel. and He builds a very simple altar. He puts wood on it and he carves a, a bull and he puts the bull parts on top of that altar. He has dug a trench around it and then he tells them, I want you to take four huge containers of water and I want you to douse the sacrifice. And they did. And then he said, do it again. So they did it twice. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. There was so much water drenching his sacrifice setup that the little trench around the sacrifice was full, filled with water. And then in verse 36 it says, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elisha the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts, you have turned their hearts back to you again. And if you listen to that prayer, it is so instructive to me, and it should be to you, about what it is that really needs to happen in our country in our county, in our city. The problem is not with all of the social evils that are plaguing our society. The problem is that people don't know God. He prays, God, that they might know you. They need to know you. God caused them to know you. The reason we have riots in the streets is because people don't know God. The reason people are shooting and killing each other is because people don't know God. The reason we have drugs run rampant in our schools, even in our homes, the reason people drink, the reason they're alcoholics, they don't know God. The reason babies are dying in their mother's womb is because people don't know God. And we think what we need to do is vote for the right man, vote for the right woman, so they'll fix all of the problems in our society. That won't fix a thing. Amen. People don't know God. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood, and the stones, and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces 
And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elisha said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elisha brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. There are three things that can only happen through an encounter with the presence of God that are described here. And we've talked about this before, but I want to underscore it again. There's a difference between knowing that God is everywhere and knowing that God is here. There's a difference between knowing with my head as a fact that God is everywhere and knowing with my heart that God is present with me, around me, in this room. And it is your pastor's desire that you and I become increasingly known as a people among whom God dwells. Because it's not about who lives in the White House. It's about who lives in God's house. And we need him. And in his presence, the things that cannot happen any other way, not through any human mechanism, <laughs> is when the fire falls, the three things that happen or that people see where they belong. That's the first thing that happens. The Bible says they fell on their faces. You see, when God comes, I know exactly where I belong. There, on my face. No one has to tell me. I don't have to take a 12-part study course. When God is present, I know where I belong. On my face, before him. People know where they belong. They know where God belongs. That's the second thing. What do they do? They shout out. They say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Suddenly, God is where he belongs. People are where they belong. God's where he belongs. And there's this mighty chorus of praise. All these people begin shouting, praising him. And God is enthroned on the praises of his people. And so when his presence comes and people recognize him, they know where they belong. They know where he belongs. But look, they also know where the devil belongs. He says, take all of those prophets of Baal, you arrest them. You get them out of here. They don't belong here. In every nation where widespread revival has taken place, crime rates drop, court cases drop, all the social ills change, and you have this explosion of social welfare coming not from the government but from the church. As the church begins to be involved in meeting those needs, and so the devil has no more place. And the devil begins to run, and the devil knows where he belongs. But the fire will not fall on an empty altar. You say, well, pastor, his altar wasn't empty. There was a bull on that altar. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Long before Elijah put a bull on the altar, he had put himself on the altar. For one man, one man, to go before the king of a nation who's been chasing him for three years and he's been hiding out. For one man to go before a mighty king in front of a whole nation and there were 450 prophets of Baal, there were also 400 prophets of Asherah 
nearly a thousand priests of the other side, all the other gods that people worship, and to stand before them, there was something that happened to Elisha first. And Elisha, long before he put the bull on the altar, he climbed up on that altar in his own heart. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore, based on the mercies of God, I beseech you to present yourself as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. You know what a sacrifice is? Sacrifice is what we put on an altar. It's dead. And we set fire to the altar and it burns and the smoke goes up to heaven. And it's a picture of something being offered to God. But a living sacrifice doesn't die. But it's always being offered to God. A living sacrifice on the altar is always being offered to God. Every minute of the day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, a living sacrifice is always being offered to God. And Paul says, this is what I want you to do. Based on what God has done for you, he rescued you. He sent his son to die for you. He came to rescue you from this world. He took you out of a dark kingdom where the enemy ruled, and he lifted you out of that kingdom. He put you in his kingdom. He said, based on the mercies of God, I beseech you, brethren, give yourself, make yourself a living sacrifice to God. Elisha had done that. Elisha did that. You hear it even in the way he prayed. You hear it in the way he acted. He gave himself to God completely, and in his prayer, he said, Oh God, this is what you've told me to do. Let these people see that all that's going to happen here is not because there's any power in me. It's because you have done it, and you simply told me to do it, and I obeyed you, and I did what you said. And so, what were his great weapons? Prayer, obedience. That's it. That's it. We think we need to spend millions of dollars to change our country. One man with a prayer life who'd given his life to God. One man who was praying and saying, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You just tell me what to do. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. One man. The whole nation was changed. The whole nation was changed. The real election this fall is not who's going to be the president of the country. The real election this fall is who's going to be the king of your heart doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office if God is not on the throne of your heart. And so I would ask you, who rules in your heart? Who sits on the throne of your heart? Who's in charge of your heart? Who makes the decisions for your household? How do you arrive at those decisions? Do you just look at the checkbook and say, we can do this, we can't do this? How do you arrive at the decisions that you're making? How do you go out and, and do your work? How do you do your business? How do you do your studies at school? How do you conduct yourself at home? Are you up on the altar? Are you a living sacrifice? How do you conduct yourself with other people? What is your reputation? How do people know you? Do they look at you and they talk about you and who you are, whether you're a good man, a bad man, a good woman, bad woman, or do they talk about your God? Are you a vehicle by which people come to know God? Can the living God, anytime he wants, work in you and through you so he can make himself known through your life? That's your purpose. That's why you're here. That's the only reason you're here. If you die without making God known in and through your life, you have wasted your life. You have been made so that he can make himself known through you. That begins with a relationship with God that he has defined through Jesus Christ, his son. Sin is that 
part of you, part of me. It is a power as well as an act. And sin is that part of us that does not want anything to do with the rule of God, that wants us to make our own decisions and act independently and do my own thing all the time. That's sin. And you can live that way and you will miss God. You will miss heaven, but more significantly, you will miss God. And something has to be done about our sin. Something has to be done with this infection that's in your heart and in my heart. And so to rescue us, God came in the flesh. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. And as he lived his life, he lived a perfect life, doing everything that pleased the Father. Everything he did was the will of God. Everything he said was the will of God. Not the will of Jesus. He had a will, but he did the will of the Father. When he prays in the garden, he says even then, he said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. He did everything he did to please God, and he shows us how God made you and me to live. Simply resting in him, trusting him. To deal with the very presence and power and the penalty of sin in your life, the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. The Bible says he bore your sins in his body on your behalf. And when he did that, the Father exterminated, punished, destroyed, poured out his wrath on the sins that you have committed, but Jesus took the punishment in your place. And to show those sins were forgiven and the power of death, which is the wages of sin, has been destroyed, Jesus was raised from the grave. And every person that puts their trust in Jesus Christ can receive the forgiveness of their sins. Do you know him? Do you know him? When you put your trust in Jesus, your sins are not only carried away, but the Bible says he comes to live inside you, to dwell inside you. Paul talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the Lord Jesus living inside you, he is there to help accomplish God's purpose for your life. God's purpose is that the invisible God might be made visible through you, and he accomplishes that. Not by you trying to live the Christian life, not by you trying to be good, not by you trying to keep all the rules, not by you trying to be perfect, but by you surrendering to the life of Christ inside of you and allowing Jesus to live his life through you. That's what he wants to do with you. That's the purpose for your life. And this morning, I want to invite you, we'll be standing down front, myself and whatever pastors we got left that are here right now and we'll be standing down front and I want to invite you to come if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to come and without hesitation or shame put your trust in Jesus say I I want Christ to save me and he will and where you have questions we'll answer them you can read God's word for yourself read what he has said about it the Bible's very clear though that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved He'll do it. Are you ready to trust Christ? Maybe as a believer, you're already a Christian, but you realize, you know, I've not been living like that. I've been living for me. I realize, Pastor, I've got some idols in my life, some some things in my heart that aren't right. And I've been doing selfish things, and I've been sacrificing time and energy and effort on things that just don't matter in eternity. And I'm ready to trust Christ in a fresh way and say, Lord, I want you to sit on the throne of my heart I want you to be in charge, and I'm going to rest in you and let you be my leader, my guide, just like Elijah, just like Elisha, rested in God, just did what he said. Climb up on that altar. Brother and sister, just climb up on that altar and say, God, I'm going to offer myself to you every day. 
Every day, I'm yours. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that so many centuries ago, you revealed yourself to the people of northern Israel in such a dramatic and a powerful way. But Father, we know you're still doing that today. We know around the world that there are thousands of people coming to Christ every day around the world, and they are seeing you, and they are coming to know you and experience you in their life. Father, we want to see that in our own land. We want to see that in Cross County. We want to see that not only in Wynn Baptist Church, but in all the churches that believe your word and lift up Jesus. We want to see people coming to know you. We want to see people set free from their idols, set free from the horrible life without you. So, Father, for that dear one that's here today that's ready to trust Jesus, I pray your Holy Spirit will give them boldness, confidence, a thirst that can't be quenched, desire that only you can fulfill, and that they would come to you. Father, guide our hearts, each of us, guide our hearts as we respond to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.